Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. This is Ben Jackson. Today we're going to do something a little different on Sorry Not Sorry. With the new year come many new challenges and maybe some new hope. In this episode, Alyssa and I will look ahead to a few of the big news stories coming in 2024. Today, I make this sacred pledge to you. The defense, protection, and preservation of American democracy will remain as it has been the central cause of my presidency. I think this obstruction case is a tight case. And yes, I do think he'll go to jail. Trump keeps lying about what the law is. The Supreme Court of the United States is going to be hearing a case on access to an abortion pill. The justices will consider whether to restrict the abortion drug mifepristone. Donald Trump reacting to reports about what a second term would look like and concerns that he would govern as an authoritarian. Donald Trump is longer is no longer merely suggesting he'll be a dictator should he win a second term. Now, he's just coming right out, and he's saying. So we're doing something different today, and we've done this every once in a while, having you on as the guest. But I think as we're starting... 2024, there's a lot happening this year, right? Like, it's kind of a mess. And it's things that we haven't really dealt with as a nation, right? So it's not only that a lot of things are happening, it's that a lot of new things are happening. Yeah, it's new things. It's a lot of scary things, I think, given sort of the gravity of it. But I also thought these are, I suspect, a lot of the issues that we'll be talking about on the podcast over the year. So having a chance for us to sit down and talk about it and see what we're thinking and maybe hear from our listeners a little bit, what they're thinking of big questions will help guide us through the rest of the year as well. But I wanted to start out with the idea of Mickey Mouse. You heard about Mickey Mouse this week, that the copyright on Mickey Mouse expired? Yeah, it just seems wild to me. But also, what's going to happen? How will that manifest itself? Because obviously what it means is that when copyright expires, characters and stories can be remade in pretty much every form on the page, on stage, or on the screen without permission. I mean, 95 years, there's been a copyright on Mickey Mouse. So what do you think is going to happen? Here's the thing that I sort of want to contextualize this a little bit because it has to do with how we value art. We could buy a piece of land and we could build a house on it and we could own that house forever. My daughter or your kids could inherit it. They could pass it on to their kids in perpetuity. And in 95 years, nobody can come in and just say, I'm going to use the bathroom when I want, or I'm going to sell this house. That property exists no matter what and the control over it. And I have no idea why the control of creative property doesn't exist in the same way, that it continues to create value. If Mickey Mouse didn't continue to create value, nobody would care, but they're making like a Mickey Mouse horror movie somebody is, and they're doing these kinds of things to profit off of somebody else's creation. And I think it gets to the idea of how we devalue creative work in the country. Do you think it's because creative work is difficult to define? 
Yeah, I think the work is difficult to define, but the product isn't, right? At the end of the day, you have an output. There's a movie, there's a book, there's a song, there's whatever. And that ownership is not in perpetuity. And there are some good sort of social justice arguments to be made about the transferable nature of creative property, that as times change and ideas change and the idea to work with these things into the demands of a new time is a pretty interesting and compelling artistic argument. But it completely negates the reality of a capitalist system that we live in, right? And that it's already really hard to make a living as a creative person. Not a lot of people make it. And if you do get to sell your one book or your two books or whatever it is, or you have a one-hit song and you live off the royalties on that, I just don't understand what it says about us that other people can then, down the road, make that same profit, especially for something that continues to generate revenue like Mickey Mouse. There are still Mickey Mouse TV shows on, uh, I'm sure on Disney Plus, it used to be on PBS or whatever. So the ownership of that seems weird to me. And I think that it depersonalizes art and devalues art. And it then allows to, I think this is where I'm starting to go with this, the social problems that happen when you take arts out of schools. You focus everything on STEM, you focus everything on things that have a different capitalist value proposition on them. And you take away the things that are the soul of the nation because they've been devalued to where they are. And so that's problematic for me. I don't know. What do you think? I just want to know what the motivation is, because they didn't just decide, you know what, we're not going to renew this copyright. What's the motivation? Is it making it an open space, much like how the internet is with apps and how you have programmers that can control their own development of apps, say, for social media? Is it creating an open source for new ways in which people can create, you know, like Twitter, I think is a good example, right? Like someone created Twitter, but it became an open source so that you had all these app developers contributing to the success and the demand for Twitter. And I'm wondering if it's that kind of thing where they potentially will up the value of Disney because more people are able to create around such an iconic character that Disney will, even if they're not directly profiting from, will profit at some point. It will all go back to Disney, even if it's not legally. Yeah. Disney has a habit of buying out these other corporations anyway, right? They bought Marvel and they bought Lucasfilm and it was at 20th Century Fox or one of these others. So they will probably, if they see something making money with a property that they owned, they will go out and do that. And I guess you could make that argument for it being a creative thing. I just think that we've seen these open source things. They've been sometimes successful in creating this thing, but what they actually produce, if you look at what Twitter is producing, it's a hellscape, right? Like, I just don't see a lot of value in that. When we come to these open source things, what ends up coming out of them tends to be lowest common denominator stuff that brings us down. It makes us worse. And that I think is ultimately servicing somebody else's profit rather than a greater sort of common good. And so these laws that force the copyright to expire after a certain period of time, if there was some way of archiving, some way of both giving revenue back to the creator in perpetuity, but also if you look at what the Smithsonian does or the National Archives, the Library of Congress, if there was something like that for these expired intellectual properties that people could then create value from in some other way, some national way, some societal value, I would have a much easier time with it. But the reason I get to all of this is I don't think Mickey Mouse is going to be the big story, but I do think it ties into the idea of this ownership of intellectual property 
and I think this will be a big defining story for 2024, is the New York Times has just sued Microsoft and OpenAI because of ChatGPT scraping thousands and thousands of their stories to train its AI, which it is then turning around and using that information it took for free to profit from. New York Times is taking OpenAI and Microsoft to court. It's filing a federal lawsuit today against the maker of ChatGPT over copyright infringement. The Times says that millions of articles published in the paper were used to train automated chatbots that now compete with it as a source of reliable information. And while the Times is the first major American media organization to sue the companies over copyright issues like this, it follows authors like Sarah Silverman, who sued OpenAI and Meta earlier this year over similar concerns related to her book. And now we're getting into some real value of creative output. You know, if you can call journalism creative output, but certainly non-tangible output. But what's interesting to me, isn't that happening anyway every time we input, regardless of who owns the information? Isn't that happening anywhere? Yeah, I think it's happening anywhere, but I think that these are the types of lawsuits that potentially could put some guardrails around it. And does that lead to guardrails around the selling of our personal data information? You know, we've seen, I think, time and time again, how reluctant the government has been to do that, where it seems like the corporate right, the profit right, always seems to trump the personal right. Because we have seen for decades now that dangers of selling personal information. And in fact, what happens when that stuff is stored online, that's part of the ransomware problem, right? (laughs) Because if there was no value to that, if people weren't selling it, if they weren't aggregating it, the idea of taking that data hostage for pay wouldn't be functional, right? It wouldn't be something that would have a particular thing. And what does all this mean for the image generators, not just the information generators that happens on AI platforms, but the imagery when you upload 10 pictures of yourself and there's some kind of artist renderings, like where did those images come from? And isn't it the same concept? Aren't these image generators also scrubbing the internet for creative images to use for these image creators. Yeah, for sure. And those individual artists, I think, A, they probably aren't going to have the resources to go after Microsoft and ChatGPT like the New York Times might. And I think it might be a little bit harder. I don't think it's any less valuable or less important, but maybe harder to point to an image and say, yeah, that type of color work, right? Or that style is very directly taken from this particular artist or this particular painting. When you can probably go to ChatGPT and say, okay, look, it's taken these particular facts, this particular information from this particular article of the New York Times, right? There's probably a more direct tieback. I always found it so fascinating that like a designer could design a dress that appears on a runway and then 50 companies could do knockoffs on it. And I think that's what we're talking about as far as like creative property. How can a designer fit style, 
pick fabrics and all the things that designers do, pay for the production, the development of a design, and then have these companies knock off their design and there's nothing to protect that initial creative thought. And I think this all goes back to the value we place on creativity versus the value we place on property. And, you know, you and I have talked about this a lot over the years, that probably the only thing that really effectively changes society is art in some way, shape, or form, right? It's the thing that brings us together. It's the thing that we talk about when we can't connect in other ways. We have somebody who might be at work that is a MAGA person versus somebody like me who is not that. We're not going to talk about a lot of world things. But maybe we saw the same episode of a TV show, or maybe we read the same book. And then we can start to have a conversation. And that's where change can happen. And the devaluation of art is ultimately going to what I really worry about. And I really worry about this as a writer. And I'm sure that we've seen this with the unions recently in the writers union and the actors union worry about it with their particular output and trying to get safeguards on it. I worry that the human is going to be taken out of the art creation. And that's going to eliminate the need for or the ability to connect in that particular way, the human behind it being replaced by something that is not human and cannot think or feel in the way that a human does changes the output of the art. It's like uh, instant coffee versus a really good espresso, right? <laughs> it takes the, the good stuff out of it and turns it into something worse. So that's my fear about AI. Well, it'll be very interesting to see how this copyright expiration is going to allow the use of Mickey. And it's Mini too, right? Yeah, it's Mickey, it's Mini. I think it's Pluto. It's a series of characters. And what's going to be, if it hasn't already happened, it's going to be out 14 minutes before there's like Mickey, Mini, Pluto porn, right? That's what's going to come out of this. And that's why I think we just shouldn't, we shouldn't allow these things to expire because that's where it's going to go. Um, no king shaming, but leave Mickey alone. Okay, so shifting gears, we just had in the first week of January, another school shooting in Iowa. And this seems to be the setup to every single year in this country. It's always happening. It's part of the background noise of the country now. I worry that we don't even hear it anymore. You know, I have this refrigerator in my apartment that is the loudest damn thing on the planet. And when I moved in here, I couldn't sleep and now I don't notice it. And we have the Supreme Court, which is its own problem for this year, but the Supreme Court is about to hear a case on bump stocks. And for people who don't remember, bump stocks are a device that people attach to a gun. They're not part of a gun. They're something people attach to it. Supreme Court has agreed to consider a challenge to the federal bump stock ban. Justices will hear arguments early next year over regulation to put in place by the Justice Department after a mass shooting in Las Vegas in 2017. That's when a man fired more than 1,000 rounds in 11 minutes into a crowd of 22,000 music fans, killing 58. Federal appeals courts have been split on the legality of that ban. The justices say they'll review the Biden administration's appeal of a ruling by the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans that invalidated that ban. The recoil of a gun, when a gun shoots, it has recoil, that the, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. It uses that recoil to turn a semi-automatic weapon, which is where you pull the trigger each time to fire a weapon without having to cock it or anything else, into an automatic weapon, effectively by using that recoil to rapidly pull the trigger over and over again. So it's not part of a weapon. The weapon functions without it. Does it fire multiple rounds with one pull? 
From the user standpoint, yes. What it actually does is it uses the recoil to create a bumping motion, really quickly moving back and forth, sliding back and forth so that the trigger, while the shooter doesn't have to move their finger, weapon slides back and forth and effectively pulls the trigger very quickly. So from the perspective of the person using it, it's basically like you pull the trigger once, like you would with an automatic weapon, and it continues to fire until you let go of the trigger. From a physics perspective, it's a little bit different, but it does the same thing. And that physics perspective is how they got to be legal in the first place, because while they simulated nearly identically an automatic weapon, which is where you pull the trigger and the gun keeps firing until you let go of the trigger, automatic weapons are illegal. We don't allow people to have them. So people designed this bump stock to simulate the automatic weapon without it actually being an automatic weapon. It's how how stupid and easily evaded some of our gun laws have been. And so remember the Las Vegas shooting. In less than 10 minutes, 58 people were killed. Hundreds were wounded by somebody using one of these. And the Supreme Court is going to hold this case. The ban is a Trump era ban, right? I think that was the only thing that he actually did, even though some of the deadliest mass shootings in the history of our country happened with him as our leader. Also, what happens besides all of this and the fact that Supreme Court is going to hear this? I think we do need to mention that the corruption trial of the NRA and Wayne LaPierre kicked off. Yeah, as we're speaking to, we're recording this January 8th. I think it's today or tomorrow that is getting underway. Just after Wayne LaPierre resigned from the NRA last week. Couldn't happen to a worse person. I hope he spends the rest of his bloody-handed days broke from this. They were instrumental in this lawsuit that is now going to the Supreme Court to try and get rid of this bump stock ban, right? Which very obviously saves lives. There's no Second Amendment purpose to a gun stock. A bump stock isn't even a gun. It's not a weapon. So there's no purpose. So I guess my question about this is, what the fuck, right? (laughs) Like, what the hell? Like, why is the court deciding to even review this? Is that what you mean? Even the most vehement gun supporters cannot make the case that a bump stock is part of a gun any more than like the case you put it in or the site that you put on it. They're devices that you add to it. It's like saying, if you put on skis, they're your feet. They're not your feet. They're skis still. And so it just, the thought processes within the gun lobby and within the conservative jurists that seem to continually support the NRA's positions in our courts is just incomprehensible to me because it's on its surface, on its face. It's not a smart argument. And the fact that these continue to fester and kill people and we allow it is just, I can't get my head around it. And in good news, there were 500 gun sales blocked based on a 2022 law requiring stricter background checks, which seems so fucking obvious for young buyers. So yeah, this is part of the 2022 gun law that passed through Congress. And it did. We had Chris Murphy on the show to talk about this when it came through. None of us felt like it was enough, but it was a start. And I think that when you tie that in, we see these 500 gun sales blocked. Guess what else happened last year? Measurable decrease for the first time since 2018 in gun deaths. Pretty substantial, actually. Almost 2,000 fewer intentional gun deaths in the United States last year compared to 2022. Intentional gun deaths. What does that mean? 
So that means something like homicide as opposed to suicide. What it does is it takes suicide out or accidental gun deaths. Somebody drops a gun, it misfires, something like that. Intentional gun deaths is when somebody intentionally shoots somebody else. And we've a measurable decrease, like a significant decrease in that. And that's laudable. It's still going to be that we have more than 40,000 gun deaths when it's all put together. It is just chipping away, right? Is it chipping away fast enough? No, I think absolutely not. But it seems to me that we can point to A, a law that passed, B, material impact of that law, 500 gun sales blocked, and C, a decreased total of gun homicides. And see that there's a chain here, right? There's breadcrumbs that say this stuff works. Nobody has been deprived of their rights. All of these people, if they want to sue the ATF, for rejecting them can go ahead and do that. There is recourse of being rejected on this. But the thing is that we're seeing is that this background check law only applies to people who are under 21. I think it's under 21 who are getting these enhanced background checks. Imagine if we expanded that to everybody. You know, it's almost ageist. Is it discrimination in a way to only limit younger people? Is it like alcohol? Like, how does that work? Yeah, I mean, I think they treat it like alcohol or like marijuana in the places where marijuana is legal or cigarettes. It restricts things that can be deadly or dangerous to certain people. But the deaths that we're seeing out of guns and the results that we're seeing out of this seem to be like, this should be a pilot program. And now we can see, okay, there's success in the pilot program. Let's expand it. But it doesn't matter because we saw the success in the assault weapons ban, right? That was clearly successful. They don't care. Nobody gives a shit. Nobody in power cares. Obviously, guns are going to be a big issue, I think, in this election. And I think, as is, abortion. We got some states pursuing criminal charges for residents who travel out of state for abortion care. We have other states providing shield laws, shielding medical providers for treating people who travel to other states. There's a new abortion law in Connecticut. We're doing everything we can to stand up on behalf of the reproductive rights of all of our citizens. Setting up a battle between states. Texas, don't mess with Connecticut. The law expands abortion access and protects providers like those in this clinic from being sued or even criminally charged by another state. I am very grateful for it, and I think it was necessary in our political climate. We're not going to sit here with our residents, with our doctors, nurses, our facilities undefended. We're going to stand up for these rights here in the state of Connecticut. We've got Texas law, which allowed to remain in effect banning even emergency abortions, and we've seen how devastating that can be. What else? The Supreme Court is going to hear cases on methapristone. Yeah, there's also this Supreme Court case on an Idaho law that says doctors don't have to perform emergency abortions. So a woman could go to an emergency room in immediate medical distress for which the treatment is an abortion. And we know that there are numerous medical conditions, which this is the case, that doctors don't have to perform them, even to save the life of the mother. Are people moving out of these states? I think we saw in Idaho in particular, some of that happening, particularly to Oregon, where those rights are a little more enshrined. But in Idaho, there were places where there were no more OBGYNs. Women could not get OBGYN care in Idaho because the doctors left the state. That, to me, is wild. And I guess this all comes down to me to what does it mean to be a woman in America? 
They're always asking the Matt Walshes and those other idiots are always saying, what is a woman? That's not the question. The question is, what does it mean to be a woman in America in 2024? It means that you are thought of less than a human. You know, we're going back to the days where women are property. I mean, it really is. The fact that we have to, we have states basically going to not physical war, but metaphorical war with each other in trying to get around each other's laws to make this happen. So you have California and Connecticut have passed these shield laws that say, let's say Alabama is trying to do this, where they will prosecute even out-of-state doctors for performing abortions on their residents. We have these states kind of making these wars against each other. And this Supreme Court, maybe the most dangerous Supreme Court in the last 160 years, is going to be deciding these cases. You know, I recognize I'm the person least directly impacted by this. I'm a middle-aged white dude living in the American South. But man, I see it impacting this country in a way that I don't know how we're going to get around ever. I don't know how we come back from it. Do you see a way back? I don't think that it happens in our lifetime. I really don't. I think part of that is the way that those four years of Trump impacted and restructured our Supreme Court. And obviously, this is one of those issues. And I feel like we do it every election cycle where we say, women, you got to get out there and vote. You got to make sure your registration is in order. You've got to corral all of your friends. You've got to make sure that the people whom you love and are sharing your village with get out there and vote to protect the weakest among us. Yeah, the thing I'll add on to that is that if you're a man and you are listening, this is not a woman's problem. And it is not for you or me to leave it to women to solve. We have a responsibility to go out. And yes, women should be registering and voting and angry, but it's our responsibility. We created this problem. And if we care about women, and man, I hope more of us do than what it looks like, we need to go out and vote on this issue in every election until we break that abortion lobby. Because I don't know how else to do it. But you say women are valued less than men in this country, and legally that very much appears to be true. And you say that we don't see this happening in our lifetime. I want to just talk briefly about the Equal Rights Amendment then, because we've just come across the 100th anniversary of the writing of that law. How should I say this? Trump's Office of Legal Counsel put an opinion forward saying that the archivist cannot publish. We have asked President Biden to withdraw that, to have his Justice Department withdraw. It's basically like a memo. Withdraw the memo so that the archivists can publish the Equal Rights Amendment. And for people who are listening, there is a petition that you can go to, which you can find on the eracoalition.org. We have over 100,000 signatures at this point. And basically, the petition is just saying that you agree with the fact that you support the Equal Rights Amendment and the publishing of it to the United States Constitution as the 28th Amendment. We will not give up until it's in there. So speak of the devil and he will appear. And you just mentioned Trump. So we should probably spend a little bit of time because there's some things going on with him. Trump is arguing that lobbying election officials to overturn the 2020 election was within his official responsibilities as president. That argument was part of a brief filed last night in which attorneys 
for the former president asked an appeals court to dismiss his criminal election subversion case one day after the Supreme Court refused to decide for now whether he is protected from prosecution. In the filing, Trump's attorneys argue that, quote, President Trump has absolute immunity, adding that under our system of separated powers, the judicial branch cannot sit in judgment over president's official acts. That doctrine is not controversial. The thing that I want to start with, I think, are two things that he said in the last couple of weeks. One is that he said he would be on day one a dictator. Now, he was saying he would only be this on day one, but we all know what he meant. And then two, Illinois requires you to sign a loyalty oath to appear on a ballot. And this loyalty oath is just basically saying, I will support the Constitution. I won't try to overthrow the government. I am a state employee at a state university. I had to sign something like that in the state where I am. And yeah, I agree. I'm not going to overthrow the government. This person who wants to lead the government refused to sign that loyalty oath and also said he was going to be a dictator. How many times does he have to say the quiet part out loud before people start listening to him? I'm reminded of the Maya Angelou quote, which is when people tell you who they are, believe them. He signed this the first two times he ran. So he's now saying, yeah, I know about this oath. I signed it the first two times. I'm not going to sign it this time. And basically what it says is, And correct me if I'm wrong, my understanding is it asks candidates to pledge that they won't advocate to overthrow the government. That should be a no-brainer. That shouldn't be hard. But I would say the last two times he had signed it, he hadn't tried to overthrow the government. He's now done that, and I think that he wants to add that into his repertoire of things that he can do. Um, Not that taking an oath would mean anything to him, but I think that he understands that there is a, a large and violent portion of the population who thrive on that particular despotism. And candidates sign it as a sign of patriotism. I think that the the chief executive officer of the United States, at like the bare minimal requirement of the office has to be that they don't want to overthrow the government they're going to lead. That has to be the basic, most lowest common denominator requirement for a president. Has to be. And yet he didn't do it. But I also want to talk a little bit about his age. So we hear this a lot about Biden. Trump is less than four years younger than Biden. Right now, Biden is 81. Trump is 77. But the way the months work, he's three and a half years younger than Biden. I want all of the people who in 2020, in that election, were Republicans voting for Trump because Biden was too old. It's four years now. Trump will be older than Biden was then. I want to hear what they have to say. Trump is 95% as old as Biden. He's older than Biden was when Biden ran in 2020. How is this an issue that's going to come up in this election? We've seen this time and time again on so many issues. The hypocrisy of his core base where certain things apply to someone where they don't apply to Trump. And it's, I don't know, besides it just being ageist, which to me, as you know, I believe ageism is just as bad as any other isms. It impacts people in this country in the sense that people can't get jobs when they're a certain age, when we have these conversations. And that creates a different kind of crisis where we have our younger generations having to support older generations because of this ageism. While we're talking about cutting Social Security, by the way, at the same time our government is looking at getting rid of Social Security, we're creating this elder Poverty. Simultaneous conversations having at once that are in total contradiction with each other. But here's the deal. Like, I'm in shock that people are just even still supporting 
Trump. I can't wrap my head around any of it. So to me, these conversations, not specifically us on the podcast, but conversations that we're seeing take place on our media, on the news, where it is this 24-hour news cycle where they have to fill up air and they're legitimizing again a man who says the quiet part out loud. I just, I don't understand. And I know that there is an obligation for the media to cover him. I just got to wonder if we're doing a disservice to the country when we're not covering him in a way that amplifies and examines under a microscope how idiotic it is that we're even entertaining the idea of putting this man back in office. And especially when, look, I'm the first person to say that the Democrats are really bad at messaging. We're horrible at it. The fact that Biden has had the successes that he has and people still are like, I don't know, what has Biden done? The Republican description of our economy is inaccurate, false, for want of a better word, a lie, a big lie even. But you know what? The numbers don't lie. And the numbers, the economic data are on Joe Biden's side because the U.S. economy is in way better shape than just about anyone predicted a year or two ago. Way better shape even than under previous presidents, both Republican and Democratic. Inflation rate is down to 3.1 percent from a high of about 9.1%. Controlling inflation without a recession. Which nobody said they could do, by the way. Everyone said, we can't, the soft landing is impossible. Janet Yellen just said, we've had the soft landing. And it looks like we're getting through this without a recession, which is an achievement that Trump could never have come up with. Never, ever. Unemployment, only 3.7%. We're seeing higher wages. We're seeing student debt being forgiven, which we're not able to do it to the extent that he wants to do it. But just the fact that we're having the conversation about forgiving student debt, that alone is a huge win. And there have absolutely been some failures. I think that not getting as many judges approved as Trump did, I think, is tough. I do think that the way in which He has handled the crisis in Israel and Palestine, has prolonged the suffering of many people. So there have been some failures, but man, this guy took over. We were in the middle of a pandemic. The country was in total chaos. There was an insurrection for the love of God. I think that there was no one who could have done the job that Biden has done in the last four years. Now we got to build on it. I guess that the thing that I would say when we're talking about these failures, and this is the thing that really worries me about our party um, and about the left in general, when you look at the right, and I'm not saying we should be like this, but when you look at the right, when they have a candidate that they like, they change their beliefs to match the candidate. We just had um, Tim Alberta on who was talking about evangelical voters, and Trump could not be farther from what the evangelical idea was. 
and yet they have changed their ideals entirely to match the person. What we do on the left is we demand the candidate change their ideals to match exactly what we want. And we have a a significant portion of people on the left. But do we think that's bad? Well, no, I don't think that's bad as a whole, as long as people are able to move past it. Because what I see happening right now is that there are people who on the left for any number of these issues, for student debt, for being on either side of the Israel or Hamas war and how that is playing out, are not going to vote for Biden because they disagree with him on that issue. And the real thing is that there is a binary. There is only a binary. Biden will be the nominee. Marianne Williamson is not going to be the nominee. Dean, uh, what's his name, is not going to be the nominee, right? It's not going to happen. The choice is binary. It's going to be Biden and it's going to be Trump or somebody who's just like Trump in their policies. And so stepping out of it, not voting because you don't have somebody who agrees with you on every single thing, ends up countermanding all of the other things that you believe in, that maybe you agree with Biden on 75 or 80 percent of the things that he does. But because you don't on that 20 percent, you're willing to back out and not vote and effectively end up supporting Trump in that case. And I understand the frustration with the binary. I understand the frustration with the two-party system. But that's what we have right now. And the work to change that can't start at the presidential level in the middle of all of these crises. It has to start at the local level, at the state level. It has to build that way until there's enough of a base where you can actually have a national election in a way that matters in a third party. That doesn't happen right now. And you don't get to not choose. And that's hard for people, but I worry about it a lot. When you have activists who are saying that they have a real hard time with the way Biden handles certain things, and they're like, oh, I'm not going to vote. I can't vote for Biden. Do you think they actually mean it? Or is it a strategy to try to push the left further to the left? I think for, and I'm not saying this is most activists. I think this is a 5% of voters on the left. I think that's what we're talking about, 5 to 10% of voters on the left who are willing to make their point by allowing another Trump term to happen, saying, look, you didn't listen to us, and now what happened? I'm not talking about everybody, right? I'm not talking about the activist community. I'm talking about the small percentage of people. But those small percentage of people, remember, Michigan was like 60,000 votes, right? Georgia, 12,000 votes. We get these small percentages in these places, and that's the problem with the Electoral College, right? All of a sudden, these small percentages just staying home end up being something that promotes a President Trump. And there is nobody that those people want to support that will help. And so that scares me a lot. I honestly, if there's anything that scares me the most about this election, it's that small percentage of people deciding to stay home or to vote third party. A third party spoiler ending up changing that particular thing. It's going to be a very interesting year. Yeah, it is. And you know, we haven't even talked about the Senate yet, which the number of seats that are up for Democrats are so much, I think it's 33 Democratic seats that are up versus 10 Republicans, and they only need to pick up two. In next year's elections, 33 seats in the closely divided Senate will be on the ballot, including Pennsylvania's Bob Casey's seat, Michigan's Debbie Stabenow's seat, and others in some of these battleground states. But for now, the Cook Political Report believes at least those two states are likely to remain in the Democrats' favor for those Senate seats. The Senate is actually the Republicans for the taking next year. Todd Belt, a professor and director of political management at George Washington University, says Democrats have 23 seats to defend, comparing to the 10 for Republicans. Meaning that it's going to be much easier for Republicans to peel off a couple seats. Remember, they only need two to gain control of the, um, of the Senate. 
And you think about judges right now and what that Senate could mean, man, it's a mess. So there's a lot to talk about. We didn't even get to talk about LGBTQ people or the environment or all this other stuff. So we'll have to do more of this. So with all of that said, you know how this ends. What gives you hope? (sighs) You give me hope, Ben. Yikes. You give me hope. (laughs) I know. You got your work cut out for you, too, because I'm not totally hopeful right now. But I do feel like there's something to be said for a man such as yourself who is a strong ally, who is constantly learning and evolving your belief system, and also giving that to students as a professor in the fact that you are shaping young minds as well as just shaping your own kid and my kids' minds. You're pretty special, and I feel like as long as you are by my side, I can get through anything in a way that is going to make me better. So thank you for that. That's very much mutual. And I love you a lot. And we're going to, we're going to take this year the way it comes and end it the way we want it to be. Alyssa Milano, you give me hope. Thanks for all you do and for your podcast. topic of my speech today is deadly serious, and uh, I think it needs to be made at the outset of this campaign. In the winter of 1777, it was harsh and cold as the Continental Army marched to Valley Forge. General George Washington knew he faced the most daunting of tasks, to fight and win a war against the most powerful empire existent in the world at the time. His mission was clear, liberty, not conquest, freedom, not domination, national independence, not individual glory. America made a vow, never again would we bow down to a king. I'm not big on New Year's resolutions. Generally, they often feel contrived and unrealistic to me. But not this year. This year, I've resolved to do everything in my power to see that Donald Trump never returns to the White House. Here's the thing. None of us are entitled to a president who shares every single one of our values. We don't get to build a president in a lab. This year, we'll be presented with two choices, and only two. One of them will be Joe Biden. The other will be Donald Trump, or someone who shares all of Trump's policy ideas. We are beholden not only to ourselves when choosing between those two, but to everyone else in this country and this world. No matter what you believe about the Israel-Hamas war, there's no doubt that Trump would be more dangerous to all involved. Same with abortion or gun violence or racial justice, or the basic fabric of our democracy. Allowing Trump to win because we disagree, even vehemently with Biden on some issues, will exacerbate those issues for decades to come. I'm going to say it again. We are not entitled to our perfect president. But we are responsible for preventing a dangerous despot and wannabe dictator from taking our country away. You have to choose. And those are your choices. Please, choose responsibly. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. 
Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry. <laughs>